Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Last week, the podcast hit a podcasting milestone. We broke through the 1,000 downloads per week barrier for the first time. Thank you very much for your support. It means a lot. And to celebrate that milestone, let's do something charitable today. This episode is called Paying It Forward in MedTech with Marissa Fair, founder of Her Health EQ. Her Health EQ is a nonprofit organization that is a little different than what you may consider the typical medically related nonprofit looks like. Today, you will learn about inequity in women's health in third and second world countries and how Marissa's efforts contribute to bringing equity to underserved populations of women around the world. She frequently jokes that this journey started in a bar. You will learn about that too. Marissa is also a successful medtech engineering and business consultant. By the end of the podcast, you will have some ideas about how you can contribute to health equity. Most of you know that I'm also the host of the MedTech Leaders Community. It is a place where professionals like yourself get together to share ideas and solutions and learn from subject matter experts. Tell you what, for the month of February, all funds from new memberships will go to Marissa's HerHealthEQ.org. Memberships cost about three or four cups of artisanal coffee, so it is not expensive. But seven new members will equal about $100 in a contribution. I consider that a win-win. You can learn more at MedTechLeaders.net. Again, that's MedTechLeaders.net. Now, be sure to look in the show notes for links to Marissa's Her Health EQ website, her consulting website, and her LinkedIn profile link. And if you like this podcast, please recommend it to a friend. An easy way to do that is to share it using the share link in your preferred podcast listening app. Now it's time to meet Marissa and learn about the importance of paying it forward to reduce health inequity in the world around us. Marissa, welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. Thanks for spending time with us today to talk about this really important and interesting subject. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about um, who you are and what you do right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a bit of a multipreneur because I don't want to do just one thing. So um, I'm the CEO and founder of Her Healthy Q, which is a global nonprofit focused on providing medical equipment for women's health to developing countries. I'm also a consultant at Fayer Consulting. Um, I have uh, had the practice open for over eight years now, just hit my eight-year anniversary. And I sit on the board of several different companies, all focused on women's health. I'm also the executive vice president of health strategy for Deep Look Medical. 
um, which is a really innovative radio radiomic solution for identifying um, masses in imaging. And I, I sit on the advisory board of uh, that company, DeepLook. I sit on the advisory board for ultrasound AI, which is for preterm birth diagnostic. Um, I am also on the, the board of PMD Medical for uh, urinary incontinence. And I'm also a venture partner at, um, at Assiduity Capital. And we focus on um, financing and supporting entrepreneurs specifically focused on healthcare in Africa. And so just a few of the things that I do in consulting, of course, there's several different projects that I work on at the same time. So um, it's busy, but it's good. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. Busy lady. Was sort of interesting, a couple things you mentioned there that were um, artificial intelligence uh, related is I am doing a series right now of podcasts on artificial intelligence. So I've already interviewed uh, Bertalan Mesco, who's the medical futurist. Yep. And I've got uh, like three or four interviews set up with doctors and companies. So who knows? I might have to circle back and talk to you about that too on a yeah, different for podcast. Sure. <laughs> for sure. It, or, or, or some other people that we're working with, you know, that are far more intelligent in the AI space than I am. Yeah, it's fascinating. Fascinating subject. Well, so we've established you're super busy, super involved in a number of things. So I, before we get into the, because I do want to go into your background, because I think that your foundation is important as it leads to where you are today and how you've become involved in this um, organization you founded, Her Healthy Q. But before we get there, let's just, can we share a story? Can you tell us a story about how your efforts have impacted somebody or, or a certain population positively? Yeah, it's always hard to just share one because I'm okay. so grateful that there's that there's many of them and and so many more in the future. But I can think about when when I went to Jamaica, and so you know I always like to visit you know where we're deploying equipment and our partners as much as we can. Obviously, pre-pandemic, and we'll get back to that soon. But um, you know I like to be there, see what they're doing, and and also really help to to answer questions and give them confidence about it too. And so. Um, I was in Jamaica and we were touring around the hospital that just created this brand new suite for, you know, their, their ultrasound that's going to be used in uh, maternal monitoring and, and everything. And it was just, you know, it's really impactful to see that like a hospital in a developing country created a room specifically for this. And it was really nice just to speak to some of the technicians who were trained on it and um, they were starting to use it. And, you know, they were telling me stories about, a lot of the patients that they've screened and that they've been able to like show them the image of the baby and they've never seen that before. And, um, you know, it's really nice so that they can be able to, you know, see how big it is or see how real it is and for them to understand and also, you know, potentially to diagnose that's, that's the point of it to diagnose, God forbid, if something's wrong and to check for anything and, and to see the progress. So they were telling me like how excited the women were and how excited, um, you know, like, like they've never seen it and they love that they were able to make sure nothing was wrong because especially as new mothers and oftentimes in developing country, a lot of new mothers are very young. And so they don't even understand their body enough to understand if something's normal or not normal during a pregnancy. And so it was really interesting to kind of get some of those stories to hear like, like just a small, little small impact because then it also made them come back for other prevention um, screenings 
other care, other, you know, prenatal care, potentially postnatal care, which is not commonplace in any developing country. And so, um, you know, being able to have a technology like this allows them to, to, to have other access to services and prevention and better health just generally. And, and then, you know, another amazing story is they called me one day in a panic uh, when I wasn't there and, and they said, oh my God, like, is it okay if we use this for something other than, you know, maternal health? And I said, well, yes, of course. Why? You know, and he, they said, oh my God, we have somebody in the ER and we think he has something like this. And I said, stop calling me, just do it. Just of course screen him. And, you know, and because it was a man and they knew that we were focused on women's health and, you know, yes, we're focused on women's health, but like, if we're going to save a man's life because they don't even know what's happening and maybe it was a gallbladder, maybe it was appendix, maybe who knows, but like the fact that like, you know, I I said, yes, of course. I said, you know, it's primarily used for maternal screenings, but like, if God forbid somebody's life is in, is, is in danger, use it. And like, they were you know, that was exciting, like exciting for them to to hear because they had this, you know, interesting technology that they actually wanted to to use, um, which which is great for us to hear. So I mean hopefully we save that man's life too. So absolutely. No, that's that's a that's a great story. And I'm uh, we're gonna talk about one factoid also to make sure people uh f- understand the impact, the potential impact of health equity, you know, around the world. So I was listening to your Ted talk. And so listeners, you can go to YouTube and look up Marissa Fair Ted talk, and you will see her Ted talk from Lugano, Switzerland. Um, that is right. Right. Lugano, Switzerland. Yeah, Lugano, Switzerland. Got my yep. geography correct here. <laughs> you um, did. Okay. But in, in this Ted talk, you shared as an example with cervical cancer, the difference between Switzerland and Rwanda. Could you share that with everybody? Yeah, I can't remember the exact stats, but the fact that 90% of all, um, of all circle cervical cancers are, are occurring in developing countries and that like cervical cancer is something that can be prevented and detected and treated. Um, but it's running rampant through developing countries because they don't have access to, you know, to preventive screenings, which then lead potentially to early treatment like we do in the States and in Europe. So uh, a woman almost every year or every other year goes for a pap smear. And while for the two seconds of, of uncomfortableness, that is, it's still, that, that is a life saving preventive screening that it does not happen anywhere, you know, in, in most places in the developing world. And that's something, you know, that the world has actually taken on as, as something that hopefully we can eliminate. Um, but over 90% of cervical cancers, and that's just one example, um, are occurring in developing countries. It's, and, and listen, like the, the stat that's out there in the world is 300,000 women globally. That's of, of women who know about it uh, when they pass away that they actually have done you know, they understand that it was cervical cancer that killed them yeah. or all so many other things. And so, you know, I, I know the stat seems misleading. I, we actually think it's closer to 300,000 per country. Um, and, and, you know, in, you know, things like in locations like Rwanda, um, all in sub-Sahara Africa, all along um, in Latin America, uh, it's a result of the HPV virus. And so, um without a single check. I mean, some women don't get checked their entire lifetime 
and cervical cancer is really slow grow, growing. So even if it's once every five years, once every 10 years, just get a, get, get a check once in your lifetime, even, you know, at a certain key moment, and you might be able to prevent, uh, you know, prevent that from killing somebody. And so, yeah, and it's, and it's, it's an unbearable pain. And thankfully, one I haven't had to experience, but it, that's what I hear. Sure, um, it sure. It eats you from the inside. Okay. So here, so we've, we have a story, we have some, uh, a f- one of many factoids that sort of define the inequality of health uh, between third and second world countries in the first world in terms of health equity and, and especially for women. So let's go back and let's talk about you and your foundation, you know, because I think that's very interesting. You're a woman and you're an engineer. Now, I, I shouldn't be too surprised at that because my wife is a retired ER physician, but she started out as an engineer before she went and went to med school. So she that's got an engineering that. degree at Cornell. What influenced you to, you know, become an engineer? I wanted to be an astronaut. And so, <laughs> okay. uh, so for me, going to the aerospace engineering program, was was the path to work at NASA um, uh, back you know 25 years ago they didn't accept corrective lenses so you couldn't wear glasses and you couldn't wear contact lenses I wore contact lenses and so I wasn't I was disqualified from it only years later have they changed that and then uh, unfortunately I think I aged out of it and then you know thank God for commercial space uh, space travel because uh, my name's in there for that so we're going up no matter what I don't care. <laughs> But, um, but I wanted to, I went into aerospace engineering and, um, my path was going to be to NASA. I mean, I, I worked at some you know, jet companies as an intern and things like that. I realized, I realized aerospace engineering wasn't necessarily for me. Um, I was also minoring in business. I've had, I had this wonderful professor who told me you can cut your course load in half and still get an engineering degree. So I transferred to manufacturing engineering which is really just like the practical engineering side of things. It's the business of engineering, it's cost savings, it's scaling for manufacturing, it's, you know, very practical, real life and and business behind it. And I think that kind of probably inadvertently set me up for the future. And then what introduced you from uh, from the engineering standpoint into med tech, into medical devices? I would like to think that it was a choice. Um, it, I just was recruited into the, you know, into a company, and it happened to be in the medical industry. I was grateful for it because I wanted to do something that mattered. So I wasn't just going to, you know, make a widget like that wasn't super interesting for me. But I, I would like to have thought at 20 or 21 years old, I had that much forethought, but I probably did not. Um, <laughs> okay. Maybe I steered towards the medical, uh, you know, community a little bit. You know, I always wanted to to give back, and my give back originally was going to be, you know, exploration and give back to, you know, science and and you know the the world of of astronomy and technology and all of that. I could still do that in a medical capacity, and I'm actually helping to save people. Um, and so, um, I think once you go into the medical device industry, you very rarely leave just because you see that impact, and uh, and that's something I was grateful for. But I, I mean, I think it was a lucky coincidence. Sure. What was the first company you started working for? Uh, it was Atrium Medical in Nashua, New Hampshire, and Hudson, New Hampshire, and they are now part of the Getting Group. Okay. Now, is when you look at your engineering and so-called corporate career, 
Is there a particular project that you're proud of? There's a few, and uh, I don't want to, you know, distinguish between any companies, but there was there's there's one or two. I mean, one of my proudest is being on the development team for the first 3D mammography system ever to be developed and deployed. I was working at Hologic. We worked on that project for many, many years. I pushed the first one off the production line um, as we all were cheering. It was the first one ever out. It still is, is the gold standard, in my opinion. No offense to people who work at other companies uh, that compete with us now. I no longer work there, but I have an affinity for it, of course. And so that was one of my biggest, proudest moments. The other ones were uh, when I, uh, with Hologic as well, I, I was doing a lot of mergers and acquisition work. And um, I was deployed down to Costa Rica um, originally for two years. Well, originally for two weeks, it turned into two years, uh, and then it turned into three years. So um, I was very lucky to be working there. And, and, and uh, for me, that, you know, that was very much life-changing. And just um, being able to work with incredible people in a different environment, still doing amazing work, and scaling up technologies. Is, uh, so, so those are two two big things that always stand out for me. That's great. So you're working in a manufacturing environment down in Costa Rica. The huge industry down there continues to still be. That That's awesome. And that sort of leads us on, I mean, that's almost a perfect segue into what led you into this Her Health EQ effort, because we you frequently joke that it started in a bar. So tell us about this. I mean, I think all good ideas start in a bar, uh, but uh, but but why not? But so I was sitting and and having you know a drink with a friend of mine. She she lived and worked and 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 grew up in Costa Rica. She was the head of a very large organization focused on breast cancer for women and 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 screening and detection and everything and education. And she was telling me that there were women dying in this, you know, more remote region in Costa Rica, which is a country of which has socialized medicine and um, free healthcare and um, access to a lot of things. It's a relatively small country, you know, and she told me that they, they were dying because their mammography machine broke down years before and it was never replaced because, you know, when you're not in the, in the city center near the government, oftentimes it's, you know, like they'll get to it eventually. And they never did. And so I was just rolled out right before Costa Rica. I just rolled out a brand new uh, mammography platform. I knew that we had returns coming back in uh, for people to upgrade their technology and trade-ins and things like that. And so I knew that we that there was probably you know several of them sitting around that that were probably going to be disposed of. And so I worked with everybody in our corporation in in Costa Rica, in the U.S., the U.S. Embassy. Uh, that organization, um, the hospital that was in, everybody. And we facilitated the donation of a a mammography machine and got it installed. And we had to, everybody had to like even work on infrastructure to make sure that there was power and rooms and things like that for the equipment. And, and it's still running, you know, 10, over 10 years later, not to date myself. Yeah. Well, you have this conversation in the bar with your friend. And it starts you moving in this direction, this project. When you first said, well, let me look into this. There might be a way I can help you. Did you have any idea it could be as complicated as it became 
with all the things you just mentioned, you know, working with the embassy, working, you know, in creating the infrastructure to make sure the the machine has the right kind of setting, blah, blah, blah. Did you have any idea it was going to be like that? I mean, I knew it wasn't super simple, but um, I didn't think it was that complicated. And that was a really complicated one, but due to the high technology, due to, you know, just government, your, you know, bureaucracy, I didn't, I didn't know. And, and at that point I was full-time working at the company. I, sure. you know, I was about to be transferred out to, to another location. And so, you know, did it in under, under the guise of, of, of the company. And it was wonderful. I had no idea it was going to be this complicated. It set up the future though, to understand, you know, what to do in the future. And, you know, it just got me thinking about if this one company that I was working with was able to do this, and to you know to save all of these women's lives and provide them better health care and what else could we do like what else can we do on a global scale on a bigger scale with more companies with more countries with more um you know different health conditions so that that eventually led me down the path of starting her healthy q and in that town in costa rica you you know this effort saved a lot of lives yeah, so far over twenty thousand and counting. Well, twenty thousand screens and counting. So, okay. um, you know, it's over ten years, and that's yeah, awesome. It's that's that's really that's really terrific, and and that does lead us to her health EQ. You know, you have this experience, you start to see the potential for providing assistance in a ver- variety of different ways. You know, why did you found her health EQ? What what made you feel like you needed to create an organization, you know, let's say as opposed to working with or- other organizations or other efforts? Um, I personally, for some reason, I don't know why, I like to do everything the difficult way. <laughs> so, so I started my own organization. I do not suggest other people do that. I highly value partnerships, and, and that is the model that her LBQ is continuing to work with. Um, we partner with other organizations as opposed to doing everything ourselves. But um, I chose to start it because there was nobody else focused on deploying medical equipment specifically for women's non-communicable diseases. We were very specific. I saw the pitfalls of, you know, I did a lot of research before. Like I understood you couldn't just, you know, put a put a trailer load of of equipment and just leave it somewhere else. There was a lot of like, there's a lot of work that has to be done, be, you know, before and after. So there has to be training, there has to be service, there has to be installation, there has to be continuous monitoring and communication, which there's a lot of organizations out there that are deploying medical equipment, and they're not necessarily doing that, uh, that level of, of follow through. And so I saw a different way of doing it. I also very specifically wanted to focus on women's health. And I was in the medical device industry, I still am. And so I saw that as an opportunity to, to do something that other people aren't doing. Like there's a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of organizations that donate pharmaceuticals. It's not something we're ever going to get into, you know, supplies or humanitarian aid. Again, something we're not going to get into. There's a lot of wonderful established organizations that are doing that and doing it incredibly well. And so I saw a very small niche and, you know, as an engineer, we solve problems. And so I chose to solve this problem because this was the background that I had and um, grateful for all the things that led me to this, in, you know, in my path. 
And uh, that's kind of why we just that why I decided to start this organization um, as as a nonprofit. And I think one of the that listeners will find this fascinating and disturbing is one of the data points that you share in one of your talks is that 70% of donated equipment ends up in landfills. And I think that's where you're trying to come in and make sure that doesn't happen, right? Correct. Correct. And we do that through you know, continuous discussions. We also provide service contracts for multiple years to make sure the equipment's working. And so if something happens, you know, oftentimes within two months, um, something happens, a board shorts out or uh, somebody leaves and there's no training or things like that. We make sure through um, the requirement of every quarter, every two, you know, every three months, they need to tell us how many people use the equipment or how many people they use the equipment on. And and so we can tell based on knowing how much usage should be should be done in the, those regions per committee, and they we know if it's getting done or not. And so from our perspective, we can then start asking some questions if they're not proactive to tell us it was broken. So you know, and and that's one of the reasons why we make sure that they're serviced for many many years, so that you know, as Americans, we don't pat ourselves on the back and get really excited that we donated something and we think that we made somebody's lives better. But in reality, we just moved, moved our garbage somewhere else. Like that, that is not a sustainable solution that does not actually help anybody. And it doesn't help the environment. It doesn't help the people that we're trying to help. Um, it actually makes more work for them. And there's just, there's, there's no reason for, for also all the work that goes behind it. I mean, you know, these, these, deployments of equipment uh, are not easy. And so we need to understand like that it's being used for many, many years and that um, it's in working condition and that there's people who are trained to do that and to, to utilize it. And, and our intent is also to train local, um, local employees to do the training if possible. Um, so that that's providing more jobs. You know, also when a piece of equipment goes down, that is that is income that technicians or doctors, et cetera, don't have. So again, like the, these are all job creation opportunities as well. Lifesavers and job creators. We hope. And so, um, in fact, you you just mentioned this the the importance of like a service contract. So, another thing that you've talked about in the past is the the three critical components for. Um, the successful deployment of this life-saving equipment, let's say in a country. And I think when you talk about service contracts, you're talking, that's one of the three components. So I think that's what you would call a committed organization, you know, somebody that not only provides the equipment, but then they'll say, we will, in addition to providing that equipment, we'll, we'll give you the service you need for X number of years. Or, or, or I think you also suggested maybe a financial investment that pays for that service contract? So either we pay for it or the company or somebody sponsors it. Um, okay. And, and, you know, we also want, we, we want our, our sites to be able to be self, self-sufficient as well. Um, they, you know, they, they need to put some sort of investment in. Sometimes they want to provide, you know, that maybe they have technicians that all we have to do is train them. 
and uh, or or when we don't necessarily train them. This is again, we partner with other organizations to do this. This is the partnership model where there's so many organizations out there that do so many different things, and we all have to work together towards this common goal. And um, so this this is another opportunity. And you know, the commitment is is being there and and helping as opposed to just like tossing something over that doesn't work and saying, we feel great, sorry, you don't. Like that, that is not a commitment. Um, that doesn't help. Right. A minute ago, you referred to the fact that the, the clinic or the institution itself that is the beneficiary of this donation, they, they need to have their own kind of ownership. And then a few minutes ago, you mentioned the fact that you do try to keep track of the the metrics uh so some kind of accountability as to the usage of the uh technology correct correct every quarter we track metrics and so we're in contact with with everybody that we work with continuously and for them uh, as part of their contract for several years they have to provide us quarterly with those information you know and that's information that we also get to provide back to our financial partners um our our own sponsors and people who support these programs because it's not simply just the donation of equipment and um, you know everything else takes care of itself. It's you know we want people to they can shout those metrics out you know like that impact is you know as much as we do and that just amplifies the work that that we do that that they have supported and so that comes back to a, a lot of our financial partners as well to say because of you we've been able to do this and without without knowing the impact. We were not able to say that. And so that's important to us. And it's not important because we like to, you know, pat ourselves on the back and toot our own horn. It's more because we, we want to show that the work is, is working. And one thing that you mentioned just before, the financial support specifically from, from the institutions um, that the, the equipment's deployed to, I mean, oftentimes that's, that's, they have to pay for import duties or they have to pay taxes on it or something like that. There has to be some ownership. Um, you know, this, this straight donation model doesn't work in developing countries or it doesn't work efficiently in developing countries. It did in the past and then it got taken advantage of. And so it works in disaster relief. It works in humanitarian aid. That's a hundred percent. Those are donation models without question in my mind, but when we're talking about a little bit more complex medical equipment, um, and and I do talk about you know ultrasounds, mammographies, uh, fetal monitors, colposcopes, um, heart rate monitors, you know, like we run the gamut, you know, diabetes monitoring, all of those things, you know, these are these are pieces of equipment that need to be utilized to have impact. And so if you give it away for free, a lot of times it's it's just locked up you know, and I don't want to use it and I'm afraid to use it or, you know, something like that. If they've paid duties or import or, uh, you know, a service fee or something like that, financially, they are incentivized to use it as much as possible because they need to get their return back. And we're also entering this phase where there's many, many developing countries and most of them that we work in that have a very large growing middle class that are able to afford some of these other healthcare services. You know, we don't necessarily work in primary care. You know, these are all critical medical uh, necessities, but they're not primary life-saving care all the time. And so 
you know, having proper health screenings, this is income that is paid often to healthcare centers, either through insurance, private insurance, or even primary public insurance, which is, um, which is, which is taking off with you know, a lot of speed in, in many countries. And there's also, you know, other, what we call disposable income that first and foremost wants to be spent on health because without, like without health, there is no access to anything else, you know, without health, you can't work. And you can't provide for your family. You can't send your kids to school. You can't, you know, have a have a good life. Um, and so, health spending is increasing at a dramatic, dramatic rate. There is this, you know, this access to to health spending. And so, without some ownership by some of the centers, they're they're not incentivized to use it and to provide these services. And so that's what we found over the years and, and uh, seems to be a, a far more effective model. And it's what a lot of philanthropy organizations are, when appropriate, um, are moving towards. Okay. And so for Her Healthy Q, and by the way, I told people in the introduction to the podcast that links to the website, to your LinkedIn profile, links to the website and so on are going to be, and plus your consulting are going to be in the show notes. Uh, but so really for, let's see if I get this right. You definitely need two, maybe more things for her healthy cue to continue to have an impact and be successful. One is money so that the, um, so this charitable organization can operate and do the things it needs to do to do the follow-up to um, watch the metrics and, and so on and so forth and have, you know, basic staff and so on. And then you need to have a partner, uh, like perhaps a industry partner that says, we've got some of this equipment and that could contribute to women's health and let's work together. We'll work together with you with this equipment. So you sort of need those two things. What else do you need? So we need that. We also need um, other corporate partners that are passionate about the work or want to make that impact. But, you know, they're not they're not direct manufacturers, you know, so that goes down to the financial support. We also need strategic support, you know, so we've been grateful to partner like with UPS Humanitarian, who handles all of our logistics. Uh, for free, you know, organizations like that, we need, you know, brain capital to sometimes do these works or, or, or connections, you know, to, to other organizations um, that might either be able to support us financially or with strategic services, um, you know, maybe pro bono, like our legal counsel. And yeah, so, so those are ways and also, you know, time. So, so uh, we always have a, you know, board of directors, board of advisor positions that are open. You know, if there's, there's other volunteer opportunities, just, just brain power to continue to do the best work. We've shifted, we've shifted throughout the six years. We were a very traditional give it away for free model um, and, and nonprofit when we started. We've shifted into sometimes a, a little bit more of a revenue generation side lately because, because that's where the market's going and shifted a lot more into partnerships because they're far more efficient. And so, you know, who knows what the shift is going to be? Uh, we're seeing a really big shift into uh, sustainability. So another thing that we're looking for are partners that want to offset their, their sustainable footprint and their CO2 footprint. That's something that we can do. We can provide to you because, you know, whether it's 
you you can't remediate some of your CO2 uh, footprint, but you can then make a donation to an organization who creates this impact, who, you know, does that. And then, you know, through that, you've, you've offset your emissions. And, you know, there's so many ways that just generally getting into hospital systems, they have so much access to equipment that they often almost always throw away and they don't want to anymore. And so, you know, the ESG metrics and the sustainability and the sustainable development goals have really had a really big push to enable us to think of other creative ways to, to partner with organizations um, for their support uh, in so many different and creative ways. And so that's, that's always who we look to, to connect with. Okay. And for those listeners that just want to, you know, say here, here's $5, $10, $50, or $100 or whatever, you can Wonderful. do that right on your website. Absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah. And we need, all, you know, all of that and, and many of those and that, you know, even five, 10, $20 makes a big difference. So one thing I want to uh, shift gears here to, let me, I'm just looking at my notes to make sure I'm covering these things, these important um, elements of the, of this uh, conversation. It looks like I'm on track. One of the things I want to talk to out, I want to talk out to the marketers and sales and marketing executives that are listening into this right now. And if you go back to my interview with Dave Aker, um, who's PhD, Dr. Aker, who's really considered the father of modern branding. And he and I had a great interview about uh, branding, marketing, and especially storytelling. And I asked him, I said, what are some of the current and future trends in marketing? And one of them he, he touted was what he calls social impact programs. And the reason he said this is because the consumers are expecting it. They're expecting companies to have um, some some form of social responsibility and social involvement. So your customers expect it. And then employees expect it. Employees want to work for a company that is involved in doing good around the world and not just making widgets and making money. So, And then you have to share that story. You know, so if you do get involved as a company, you need to share that. And, you know, I, I remember a small ophthalmic company that made these really small portable devices that are really terrific. And these people had images on their website. If you knew where to look, uh, they collected images from the doctors that took their equipment overseas to help people on these on these philanthropic trips, medical, like, what do you call them? Medical medical missions, medical missions. Thank you. And, and I told the CEO who I was working with at the time, I said, that should almost be front and center. Those, those images not only talk about how great your product is because it's so portable and effective, but they're just so compelling. It just warms your heart and it just makes you feel like this is the kind of company I want to do business with. So I, I think that to all the marketing people out there, salespeople, the executives that are listening into this, um, there's a lot of people that listen. Uh, this this week, I'm going to break a thousand downloads for the first time. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. But think about social impact marketing and um, how you can take advantage of something good and make sure your customers and your employees know you're doing it because it's really compelling. 
And then, and with that, I can get off my soapbox unless you'd like to reinforce that. No, I think it's really important to know, you know, telling the patient's stories, leading with impact and these personal stories, like that's really important and compelling because that's how people, they resonate. You know, you don't know what somebody has had or their family has had in the past. So telling these stories, although I'm not a, a very large advocate of using everybody's faces all the time, just because that uh, is exploitation often. So I, I want to be very careful um, on that, but you know, we have to show what's happening and in, in, in real in real use. And so, um, I think it's really important to show to show the impact, to show the stories, and also to tell the stories. Exactly what you said, tell the stories. Like employees demand this, especially now. Consumers demand it, especially now. Like I know that there are certain products that I will buy and spend a premium on, or go out of my way for, because I know that they're doing something good, as opposed to not. And, and maybe that's in a, because I'm in a position to do so, but I, I think it's, this is, this is the trend. This is why Tom's shoes, you know, picked up. This is why Bomba's socks has such a great reputation. You know, there's little things. Um, this is why all these corporations, a lot of their ads now are more about personal stories, less about their product. You know, like there's, there's all these ads that are on TV and it's, you know, you don't even know what they're advertising for until the last moment because they're telling a story. Um, and then it's like, and you got it because you got your, you know, you got it through your UPS truck. And it's like, oh, that's a, that's compelling. It makes me actually want to watch this commercial. Yeah. I'm, I'm in this household. We're the same way. We do pay a little bit more for many things because we know it, it has an impact. It's positive for um, people and for our, the country and the world. How do individuals get involved? We talked a little bit about this. How can individuals get involved with organizations like Her Healthy Q? We talked about equipment. We talked about money. We talked about time. You know, I remember when I was a sales rep going into a, a doctor's office, and if they were involved in these medical missions, they'd frequently have in, in the hallway, they would have all these pictures from these missions that they've participated in, which I thought were fascinating. Um, so I guess for, if you're in sales, if, if you're out in the field, one thing to do is to take note of that and then to, you can't make a commitment right then you can't commit your company to anything, but you could go back to your boss and say, Dr. Smith is involved in this kind of work. Is there a way that we could support this? Yeah. I mean, so okay. even on an individual level, that's one way you could do it. Go ahead and expand on that for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it, everything starts with an individual. So, you know, you like you like what this is doing, you like what this doctor is doing, you've, or you've seen us as an organization or other organizations, think about ways within your own company that you might be able to integrate that in. So sometimes we do some work, you know, because we're working on women's health with, you know, women's groups, even in banks, you know, like they have speaker series and they want to speak about a different topic or, you know, the state of women's health or you know, something like that, something that resonates with different types of groups. And so, you know, we'll participate. And then all of a sudden, it's, you know, great, like, you know, also here, we have all these people who now, you know, are, are part of part of us and and either contribute individually, or we can work to work on a more financial um, application, you know, and support through an organization. And so like, think about it, like all of these things, everything starts as an individual. And so how can you advocate for things that mean something to you and and 
mean something to you, to your company, match those things together. Because also as an employee, it's really good for you to be doing something else and to be doing something that betters others. And so, you know, who knows when you're up against a other, another person for promotion and you did this and they did not, like, that's something else that you took on under your own volition to do it. And so I'm not saying to do it as a corporate climber, but it's more do this because it means something to you and it actually might really help your career and or it might help you find your passion or maybe you're so interested in it or your company is so interested in it and they would never have heard about it. Like maybe they become a supporter. Maybe you join the board. Maybe who knows, who knows, who knows? Um, maybe you find your passion and you know, you're able to do that or explore it on a part-time basis with a nonprofit um, that resonates with you. So there's so many opportunities to be able to kind of utilize the skills you have as an employee or as an entrepreneur uh, and the connections that you have um, and, and help other or their organizations that, that, you know, need that. And so it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's the multiplication of, you know, com- the compounding effect. Um, right. And that's that, those are ways that even individuals, because listen, everything is driven on an individual level. I was one individual who started an organization and then we pulled in other, or, you know, individuals to join our board and to be our supporters. And they, you know, open up their networks to connect us to other people. And so it's all it's all individual based. Like we're all not in this massive system. Um, most organizations and like by most, I mean like 98% of organizations are smaller in nature, are making a tremendous impact. You know, you hear about the Gates Foundation, you hear about UNICEF, you hear about Doctors Without Borders. Of course, you hear about those because they are the large, very large organizations. But in reality, 98% of organizations are incredibly small and um and and they're just they just don't have the the press and publicity really to to get their name out there like those others do. Sure. And then finally, you know, and and to be involved in this stuff, it just makes you feel good. Absolutely. You know, you're exactly. paying it forward, which is, I, I believe, what I am going to call this podcast is going to have the paying it forward term in it. But. Um, Anything else that you would like to share with us? I think we've covered a lot of ground. I, I want to make sure people understand that you are a talented consultant and that you, and by as being a talented engineering consultant, um, that helps you give you some of the freedom you need to be so involved in these women's health initiatives, including your own uh, organization, Her Health EQ. Anything else yeah. you would like to share with us today? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. I think we covered so much of it. You know, I'm I'm grateful that I that I do have this flexibility and freedom. I mean, I love the companies also that I work with because I get to do a lot of strategic, high-level work with them and planning and setting them up for the future. And to me, that's really exciting. And so again, like this all comes back to you know, my faithful engineering degree, um, and, and I'm grateful to have also an MBA behind it. But you know, see, seeing how a lot of the pieces come together is really is really what I do. I, I mean, that's also what helps in her LTQ. It helps in my consulting work. It helps in my board work. And and I think it's just trying to put all these pieces together um, is a really that's that's very much what I do on all aspects of of everything. 
Well, thank you very much for being on the program today. And thank you for all that you do for um, women's health equity in the world. And I know you've got, you know, a lot of plans. You're a very ambitious person, but you're making a difference. And uh, all I ask my listeners is, is they help people like you make a difference. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks to all the listeners who, who are listening to this. If you are already participating in healthcare-oriented charitable giving in one way or another, I commend you and thank you for your efforts. Like Marissa said, there's lots of ways to give. It could be equipment, money, or time, or all of the above. Just remember that if it is equipment, you want to implement a system to be sure the equipment is properly used and serviced. What are you doing? What is your company doing? I know Marissa has me thinking a lot about what I should be doing. Remember, there is nothing wrong with your company touting its contributions to reducing health inequity. It can be shared in a section of your e-newsletter. It can be a couple graphic panels of your trade show exhibit. Customers will like to see this, and it will make employees proud to work at your company. Finally, it will set an example for other companies to get more involved in similar initiatives. Just think what individuals and industry can accomplish with a little more effort. Lots to think about, as always. Thanks again for spending time with us today. Now go win your week.